Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, all the way from his parents' house in suburban New Jersey, Ed Condon. And uh, Ed, uh, how are you doing? See what I uh, did there in New Jersey? I did. The uh, The accent has been particularly striking <laughs> is that this so? trip. Oh, no, it is. I, I mean, you know, there's always... There's always a little bit of New Jersey accent that you hear when you're up and around here. But I was in the, I was in the local supermarket the other day. Which, was it a Pathmark? No, it was an Acme. An Acme. That's a good. Uh, that's a old school. That's kicking it old school. There are fewer and fewer Acmes. Well, Acme have the meats, mm-hmm. and uh, I need a lot of the meats mm-hmm. for this week. So I was there, and uh, I didn't know this until I came up. But apparently, they've um, grocery bags are now illegal in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, it's happening more and more places. Can you buy them? Like in in Colorado, you can pay ten cents for them. And what happens is, after you do self checkout, the machine says, "How many bags would you like to purchase?" And I hate that question because the answer is zero. Uh, so no, that is it's how a little I've- moral test each time against from like because I know that I should pay for all the ones that I buy, and I do. But each time I feel like the the, the devil is tempting me with this semantic little quibble I could make. It's true. I they no. So it's that. First of all, that's not the situation in New Jersey. In New Jersey, they're just illegal. They have none. So you how do you get? Um, how do you? What do you do with your groceries? You have to bring your own reusable container with you. But what do Otherwise, you do if you? What do you do if you don't have it? Well, so this is how I noticed the accent this time that I was up here is because there was a a guy would come on periodically over the PA system in the store and. Uh, warn people that they may have forgot their bags, and, <laughs> and if they forgot, if you forgot these bags, uh, don't worry, because Acme sell bags throughout the store, reusable bags. That sounds more. Bo- I, like I'm from New Jersey, as you know. That doesn't sound. That sounds more Boston to me. I it, honestly, it was. I mean, I'm sure I'm not doing it justice. I I don't claim to be an accurate mimic in this. But it was it was so. I mean, the the pronunciation of bags as though it was b e g g s was was definitely what struck me as well as true, c h r u, throughout the store. That's amazing. Um, but it was. I mean, I it was so profound and it was so pure. I I like had to stop for a moment in the middle of the aisle and just admire it. I was like, this is, you know, it. it I mean, this is the problem I gather with New Jersey in general is that it labors under many stereotypes. Uh huh. And um, everyone sort of has one eye on the Sopranos when they're when they're coming to New Jersey from outside. But I mean, normally I think, okay, that's overdone. But but this guy, I mean, he should he should have some sort of job. He should be employed by the state to do official voiceover work for things. He sh- he should be the voice of New Jersey. It was such a pure accent, and I I really admired it. That's I, lovely. You know, it was lovely. But no, to your original question about um, can you pay for bigs on your way? No, you can't. You ironically in D.C. they do that. You you have to pay for plastic bags as you leave the grocery store, and it offers you that option. Maryland does not. So how I square the circle with myself because obviously I rebel against this being asked to pay for shopping bags. Um, I think it's five cents rather than ten cents. Ten cents in Colorado. It's really you know times are tough all over. Yeah. So I'll use half as many bags as I need if I'm shopping in the district of columbia to pay as little as i have to but then the next time i go to the store in maryland i'll triple bag everything just as a revenge on the environment <laughs> and and i feel you know that kind of it's a wash for me that way. <laughs> and then do you throw them in a brook on your way home 
No, no, I choke out a goose with it. <laughs> Is it at least for the sake of making foie gras? No, these are Canadian geese. <laughs> Are okay, so I, that brings up a question that I think is important. And listen, everybody, it's Thanksgiving week, so if you don't want us to be talking about this stuff, it's Thanksgiving week. We'll, we'll talk about some church stuff, but we're we're this is this is my damn task, as it were, and we're talking about this. Uh, I don't believe, and I could be wrong. I don't believe that the Canada goose is actually appropriately called a Canadian goose because I thought that it was actually named for some person rather than the nation of Canada. I I could there's be, a man named Canada for whom they're named. Ornithologists will have to weigh in here because I, um, uh, I am not uh, I I am not finding it very quickly. But I believe that uh, Canada goose is appropriate, but because of the origin of that name, Canadian geese is goose is not appropriate. Huh. I I did not know that. I mean, th- a disproportionate number of them seem to live in Canada. Is that so? I, I don't. don't they? I mean, but this, they're them, flying north to south across the country. I mean, a disproportionate number of them seem to live like um, on my yard. You know what I mean? Right, right. But that's because you're a stopping off point both directions, right? Yes. I mean, I mean if, if, they're sure. trans, if they're flying from Canada to warmer well, climates. Well, they could be flying to, they could be flying, for all I know, they could be flying to Montana or the Dakotas. I can't say where they're winter. I know, but we can are. accept between us friends that large proportions of the, of the northern United States are. Are culturally Canada. <laughs> I don't think that's so, actually. I wouldn't no, say this I, in I Montana, actually, but Minnesota is mostly Canada. We can Minnesota agree with might that. be, but anything sort of west of that, when do you get into Washington the State is Canada. Okay, there's a band. There, I, I need you to agree that the sort of um, upper plains of, of the Dakotas, Idaho, and Montana are decidedly not Canada. They're, no, they're, they're cowboy like, country. Those are decidedly American places with the sort of rugged individualism of America or the sort of pioneer yes. spirit of the Dakotas. But yes. in no way do they have the um, the uh, the spirit decor of Canada, as it were. No one's eating mayonnaise and Jello sa- salads up there. No, <laughs> I don't, is that Canadian? I thought that I was assume Minnesota. so. It's it, I no, I hear it's. A, I think it's. I think it's a Minnesotan thing, and so therefore I assume it to be Canadian. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I I just don't know enough. I'm not trying. By no means am I trying to discredit you. Believe you me, I just don't know enough about this particular arcane topic to be able to of uh, layered salad. Right, exactly. To be able to a pine um a pine here that's fair okay i mean i i don't know anything i you know but i you you when in doubt jd assert it with confidence and and you usually get that away is my it. experience that is that is my methodology for most things when we are talking on this show about anything other than canon law my sort of motto is often in error never in doubt and, yeah, that's and I totally valid. Usually that's get away totally, with it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We need to stop uh, talking about this stuff because we're, if we do, we're not going to have time for for all of the really <laughs> serious stuff we're we have to talk have about. Time for all of our other shenanigans. But we were supposed to, Ed. We were supposed to have um, a um, uh, a mailbag episode. We were going to have a canonical mailbag episode. What we tend to call Big Block of Cheese Day, where people send us canonical questions and then we answer them. But I'm not so sure we're going to do that um, today because there's some Imagine stuff that I want to talk surprise. about, some things that are some things that have just emerged that I really want to talk about and um, and that I think are worth talking about. So we might get to a couple of canonical questions in the back half of the show, but I don't think that that will be the case. I think we're just going to talk about the stuff that that I want to talk about. All right, but I you should you should understand that while I might you know welcome many of our listeners who wrote in with interesting and thoughtful canonical questions, 
sharing for once my frustration at having the J.D. bait and switch on what we're going to talk about <laughs> on this show, you should be aware the law of diminishing returns will apply here. And the next time you canvas them for canonical big block of cheese day episodes, uh, the return will be less because they'll say, I'm not taking the time. No, to. that's fine because I have a stack of questions. People send in great questions and I'm very grateful for them. And during the course of Advent, we will do a canonical mailbag episode. That is a, without a doubt true. Very honestly, I want to prepare a little bit more for it. And because ah. and, I want to give people good answers. You know what I mean? And mm. I also um, – I also there's something in there are things that are happening in the life of the church that I just want to talk about and I think that it's now now or never. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So what I want to talk about, Ed, what I want to start out with is um, something that I wrote about in my. We're recording this episode on Tuesday. I have no idea when you're going to get it actually, but uh, we're recording this episode on Tuesday around uh, around noon my time in Colorado, and I want to talk about something I wrote in my newsletter this morning, namely um, an interview that was given by the coadjutor bishop of. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut, Archbishop Christopher Coyne, Chris Coyne, as they call him, uh, around the water cooler, um, uh, about just sort of just a sort of broad interview. I mean, it was only eight minutes long, but it was a sort of eight minute long interview he gave with a local news station just to sort of like, well, what does our incoming archbishop have to say? And and I think you watched the interview, didn't you? I did. You sent it to me. I was surprised by <laughs> Archbishop Coyne's answers. Um, many of the things he said I, I would call them arresting, JD. I was arrested. I was prepared to sort of have that on in the background while I was doing other things, and I found myself pausing um, first in curiosity and then in in sort of total shock. Well, so there uh, are two things that are attracting a lot of attention about this interview, and I want to fly by them, but then I want to talk about a third a third thing. Um, the first thing that I noticed is attracting a lot of attention is that Archbishop Coyne was asked towards the end of the interview, and again, just to bring you up to speed, a coadjutor bishop is someone who is appointed with the right of succession to a diocesan bishop. So Archbishop Coyne was before this the Bishop of Burlington, Vermont, and before that, an auxiliary bishop in Indiana, and he was appointed to the Archdiocese of Hartford effectively to wait. Archbishop Leonard Blair is 74. He turned 75 in April, and Archbishop Blair requested a coadjutor, which is basically a way of um, asking for the Holy See to sort of give you a successor as soon as you accept your retirement. And and oftentimes to have a little bit more influence over who, not always, sometimes people ask for a coadjutor and they get someone, but it's not who they asked for. And we don't know what the case is in this case, but it can be a way of having a little bit more time to, um, or first of all, having a little bit more influence over the process. And then having some time to sort of um, have a longer handoff so that you kind of are gradually giving the coadjutor more and more responsibility for leading the diocese so that by the time your retirement is accepted, the uh, transition is meant to be to be seamless. Is that fair? I think that's fair, yes. It's like having, and, and often you'll get a co, I mean, this is, you've outlined one way, which is that the, the bishop himself requests a coadjutor uh, so that they can have either a sort of get to know you stroke breaking in period before a foreseen handover. Um, the other way is, of course, you can be given a coadjutor, and I, 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 this is just to cover the basis of the law. Yep. There's nothing to suggest this is what happened with Archbishop Blair. I want to make that absolutely clear. You can also be given a coadjutor by the Holy See who decide that perhaps certain areas of Episcopal ministry are not your bowl of walnuts. And or if you're so, in just poor health on the whole, or if you're in declining yeah, health. On the whole. So it has it has happened in the past that um, bishops have been offered, quote unquote, offered given. Uh, coadjutors and said, well, why don't you let this guy take care of the finances of the diocese, for example, or something like that? It's also the case, I mean, now that we're just talking Those about- Those are how called coadjutors with special faculties. They're given yeah, it's, specific it's also areas the case of- that an auxiliary can be, uh, uh, someone can get an auxiliary with a special faculty. So for example, you know, the sort of famous example of this is in the 90s, Archbishop 
Hunthausen of Seattle was thought to be a bad teacher of the faith. And so um, I don't think it's fair to say he was thought to be a bad teacher of the faith. He was a bad <laughs> teacher of the faith. I mean, Roma lacuta causa finita. Archbishop Hunthausen was an 18 carat nut. Okay, and so I was very, very I bad at the teaching was of the a Catholic bad stuff. Of the faith, and so um, a young bishop, uh, a young bishop out of uh, out of Pittsburgh, I get no, a young a bishop young out of Gun a out young of priest, uh, probably a young priest out of Pittsburgh. I think he'd been seminary rector before that. One Donald Whirl uh, went to become the auxiliary bishop of Seattle with special faculties, and he was basically put in charge of catechesis while Hunthausen remained sort of the diocesan bishop. And this, and he's put in charge of like catechesis, priest personnel, and like five other things. And this proved to be a disaster because Whirl was sort of asked to take over certain parts of the diocese without running the whole diocese, and Hunthausen didn't like that. And it was not um, very honestly, it was not fair to Whirl, in my view, in the in light of history, to sort of put him in this situation where he was asked to do something that seemed very much like the impossible, the impossible. He was given a thankless task and he shouldered it and and did, I think, as well as anyone could possibly do in that circumstance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. That's the notion of a coadjutor or an auxiliary special faculties. We don't know why Coyne is the coadjutor of Hartford. He could have asked for a coadjutor, you know, the, the current Archbishop Blair could have asked for a coadjutor or he could be sick or who knows, but Coyne is the coadjutor of Hartford. And so this local news station did this interview, basically like get to know your coadjutor and uh, the things which attracted attention. For, first of all, Coyne was asked towards the end of the interview, what would you tell the Pope if you had like, if there's one thing you could tell the Pope? And Coyne said um, that he would, if he had the, if he had the wherewithal to sort of tell the Pope one thing, which obviously he actually does have the wherewithal to tell the Pope one thing. Um, but uh, uh, Coyne said that he would tell the Pope to move the Roman Curia effectively out of Rome. That get the, the Roman Catholic. He said the Roman Catholic Church is too Roman. Effectively, it's too Roman. Get it out of the diocese of Rome. Get the Curia out of Rome. It's too entrenched with sort of Roman culture. He said, you know, everything is an is an overladen bureaucracy in Italy. The police, the business, taxes, everything is so bureaucratic and Byzantine <laughs> um, that uh, the Roman Curia takes on that culture as well. And so the Roman Curia is relatively dysfunctional simply because it exists in in Rome. And so he said, I would move. find a benevolent French king with a seaside yeah, right. town. I mean, he and... didn't say it, but it sounds like he thinks it would be a good idea for the Pope to sort of decamp to Avignon or Boise or something, Hartford perhaps, and, uh, and, and govern there. That has attracted a lot of attention from people who say, well, you know, that has not I... worked well. I would call it ridicule. It's attracted. It's attracted ridicule. <laughs> That's right. is what it has attracted. It has attracted a fair amount of ridicule from people who say that has not worked well historically in the past. Pace Avignon, and from people who say the thing about the Roman Pontiff is that he is principally the Bishop of Rome, and yes. the Pope cannot take his talents to South Beach, um, as it were. No, um, we in fact have some ongoing schisms over this with the patriarchs of Constantinople and Moscow. Who, who think that the the primatial nature of the Sea of Rome can just follow the emperor to wherever the, the center of global geopolitics is. Um, and, and the church and the popes have taught rather, rather firmly that this is not the case. Yeah. Okay. So that has attracted a lot of what you might call ridicule online. So that's thing number one. Thing number two that has attracted a lot of attention, I wrote about this in my newsletter today, is that he was asked about, you know, what about the role of women? Do you think there's room for a, a greater role for women in the life of the church? And Archbishop Coyne sort of said, I do, and then immediately jumped to women's ordination. He said, you know, we're having discussions right now about the the ordination of women to the diaconate. Uh, as to the, to the priesthood, and I want to sort of read to you what he said because I want to get it right. 
He said, women's ordination at this point, in terms of the diaconate, is kind of being discussed. In terms of, uh, for the priesthood, it's not open for discussion. We've been told it's case closed. But hopefully, there will be some opportunity down the road to ordain or name some diaconesses. Now, I want to give Archbishop Coyne credit. Um, when he said to ordain or name diaconesses, I think he recognized the complexity of the conversation that had been happening, or maybe still is happening in certain ways in the life of the church, about the notion of of women and the diaconate. This notion that in the early church, there were women who had some title of diaconess, and that they assisted women with catechesis, and that they assisted women with baptism. And Ed, I have said to you, yes, sir. I want to query your pronunciation. You're, you're saying diaconesses, which I've never heard before. I'm not sure where that came from. Deaconesses would have worked just fine. I don't know how that happened. Deaconess, I think, is De- the more accepted pronunciation, the received pronunciation, if you will. Uh, sure. Um, but I'm, I've been thinking about New Jersey and sort of like, hey, look at that. <laughs> look at that lady. She's the real deaconess, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Check out the Dalmatic on her. Marone. That's what I've been thinking about. So in where you are now in New Jersey, I think <laughs> deaconess is just right. <laughs> wow. Hey, your okay. mother's a diaconess. That sort of thing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Did I ever tell you? Okay, so one time uh, my dad was playing basketball with some guys, and uh, one guy said something about. I can't, did I ever tell you this story? My dad's no. playing basketball with some guys, and, and my da- one guy said something about my dad's mother because it's New Jersey. And so you sort of say, like, oh, tell your mother I said hello after you dunk on someone or whatever. <laughs> this guy said this to my dad, like, oh, blah, 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 your mother this. And my dad <laughs> walks off the court, sits down on a bench, and puts his head in his hands. Like in the middle of the game, he just walks off and puts his head in his hands. And the guy comes over and he goes, oh, Dan, what? My dad goes, uh, look, I didn't want to say anything because I just came here to play basketball, but my mother died um, yesterday. And so that's very you know, personal for me and very you know, uh, emotional for me and everything. And I know you didn't know anything, but it just really crushed me. And uh, the guy goes, uh, oh, wow, I'm, uh, I can't believe, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never say anything like that again. And uh, my dad said, uh, well, that's not true, but tell your mother I said hello and then walked right back onto the court. <laughs> I've always wanted to emulate that. It seems super cool. Wow. Okay. Anyway, uh, so diaconesses. Um, <laughs> okay. So I want to give Archbishop Coyne credit because he said, hopefully there will be some opportunity down the road to ordain or name some diaconesses is what he said. And, right. And um, the bulk of scholarship has established and the Holy See has recognized. And indeed, Pope Francis has said that the deaconesses as referred to in the apostolic church and everything that there was a, such a thing. There was an there was such thing. a thing. No one disputes that there there were deaconesses, but that they operated in a way that is more appropriately understood with sort of our our common modern thinking around anchoresses and things. Yeah, that's right. And that there was no sacramental ordination analogous to the ordination of deacons. That that's right. We might have had the term deaconess, but that was not to say. Oh well, there are there are deacons and they are deaconesses, and this is one order of the diaconate. It is the same thing, and they are created and ordained in the same way. And you know, no. And again, this is what Pope Francis has said, having himself commissioned, I think, three at this point. That's right. Studies on the subject. Rather, there was the sacramental ordination of deacons, and then there was a kind of commissioning for diaconesses. And um, I think it is possible. I mean, in the early church, as sort of theology is being developed, that. Those lines weren't, you know, I think it is possible that those lines weren't always sort of clearly and systematically delineated by every single person who 
was in proximity to a diaconess. Um, but the Pope has said, this is the, this is the trajectory of the thing because what we have received as an, as a, as an element of the deposit of faith is that holy orders is reserved to, to men alone. And so Coyne in saying ordain or name, I think did give a nod to the complexity of the conversation, even though he himself was agnostic on the possibilities, right? He said ordain or name, giving both of them sort of equal weight, one is as possible as the other, you know, seem, seeming to right. be the, But he's, either way, he made it clear that he was in favor of it. Either way, he made it clear that he was in favor of it. What struck me about that, and again, this isn't the one I really want to get to, but what struck me about that was the way in which he talked about Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, the church's teaching that ordination to the sacred priesthood is reserved to men only, and then sort of the subsequent adding on of that from Pope Francis, who says ordination is reserved to men only, and then Pope Francis, just about every chance he gets, says, and the, and the sacrament of orders is one, right? Sort of yeah. laying down, yes, Ordinatio Sacerdotalis talked about ordination to the priesthood, but there's one sacrament of holy orders. Well, and Pope Francis has been firm enough on this that there was one audience in the Paul VI Hall, I think it was in 2020 or something, where he was answering questions from religious sisters, and he was doing a sort of papal big block of cheese audience, from what I recall. Which we're not doing, yeah. Which we're not doing. Um, and he he was asked about deaconesses and the possibility of ordaining women to the sacramental priesthood and things, and he said basically, no, we can have a conversation about what deaconesses were in the apostolic church, that's fine. But we're not, the 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 possibility of women's ordination, sacrament of this is not on the table. And he even said to a religious sister, as I recall, who asked him this question, and if you if that doesn't please you and you want to go off and start your own church, knock yourself out. Like he's that clear on it. Like he's saying it's it's this, accept it, or schism. That's that's where he that's where Pope Francis is on all of this. Um so there is that. I mean, I, I slightly brittle when you say, and this is not to do with you, everyone who says, it kind of makes me, you know, when people say, oh, it's ordinance or such It's like, well, okay, but that's not where the teaching started. Right, right, right. That's where the teaching started. So JP2 didn't come up with the idea right. that mm -hmm. um, sacramental ordination is reserved to men alone. That is just the common and constant teaching of the church from Christ's commissioning of the apostles. Like our, our Lord and Savior in his earthly ministry was was a guy who was known to push the boundaries. He was a guy who was known to contravene social norms. He was a guy who dined with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and turned money changers' tables over in the temple. And you know, he he you know did his thing. And he was, as the Pharisees were wont to observe, was no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. um, if he had wanted to have women in the twelve or in the seventy-two, he could have. Yeah, that's right. He absolutely could have. There were plenty of women in his inner orbit, apart from Our Lady herself, Mary, Martha. You know, they, they like he was. Our Lord was not. You know, he could have ordained women if he wanted. He could have commissioned women to go out and serve in the in the apostolic ministry had he wanted to, and he elected not to. And that is, you know, the church teaches that there's there is there is meaning to that. That it's not you know just a sort of holdover of a different era. On the contrary, that this says something about. You know the personhood of the priesthood and its relation to the person of Jesus Christ, who was you know a historical reality and rooted in being truly man, and you know, and that you know the the figure of Our Lady is equally important and uh, not equally important to Christ, but you know, the the fact that Mary is a woman is also of equal importance to understanding her as a figure in the Church and what she means. Um, so you know that the gender is not a non-issue in the Church. That gender is rich with theology that it, you know the the created order that we have comes from god and it is reflected in both church teaching generally and in the ordering of the church that's right sorry
No, that's- side issue. I just, you know, when, whenever we say, and I include myself and say, oh, it's, you know, he's going against ordinance or such and such. It's like, you know, it's much bigger than that. It's uh-huh. much, you know, it's, it's not just, oh, JP2 wrote a thing in the nineties. It's, you know, it's much bigger than that. Totally valid. Sorry. Carry on. No. Okay. So, um, I'm glad that you made that qualifier. I think that's good. Um, but what I really wanted to ask you about was how he talked about the church's teaching related to the ordinate, <laughs> to sacred orders and sort of how he how he framed it, which I talked about in a little of my newsletter today, but I already got to sort of opine on this, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to do this. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I was struck. I mean, you, we were talking about it at the same time, and, you know, we both lit upon the same phrase he used, which is, you know, they've told us. Right. We've been told. We've been I told. We've been told. We've been told, which is very weird because who is the we in right. that? in that sentence, in that construct with whom Archbishop Coyne is putting himself and told by whom, um, you know, the way he sort of lets it float out there is he makes it sound like we, good people who would like to see women be ordained, have been told by they, whom he immediately went on to discuss, I assume, by not by implication, but by direct reference, mm-hmm. those Romans um, you know, they have shut the door on us. And and I just, it's a strange, strange way for an archbishop to talk about a sacramental teaching of the church to say, well, we've been told no. I, I kind of, I mean, maybe I'm taking this too far. And and I'm sure if we are, we'll hear from, we'll hear from this. That's right. We'll hear from listeners and we'll hear from Episcopal listeners who will say you're giving the guy a rough ride. And and if that's if, if that's true and I am, then please. Well, give if me Episcopal a listeners say it, it will it will be true. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, but I feel I like think, no bishop should ever I think, say. Look, you might say, "Hey, you guys are really de- sort of going going deep on an eight minute interview with a local news station." But I think there were certain elements of it that are worth worth discussing because I think they fit into some trends about sort of the episcopacy in the moment. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's worth dissecting because Archbishop Coyne just ran to be head of communications for the that U.S. Too. Bishops' right, Conference. Exactly. So he had sort of so sort of communication a, is his self described forte. Um, but no, he. I don't feel like a bishop should ever use the phrase "we've been told" in relation to church teaching unless it's immediately well, followed it, with "by God." Yeah, what it does is it 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 um it distances himself from ownership of the church's doctrine. Right. And a bishop, as a member of the College of Bishops, like actually has the responsibility of c- carrying on, con- being a steward of the mysteries of the deposit of faith, and then helping in the various ways that the the, that the College of Bishops does help in a, in a sort of sacred and charismatic way to define and clarify the deposit of faith at the that are appropriate, but most especially a bishop is a teacher of doctrine who guards and protects and safeguards and transmits the deposit of faith. So what I found interesting about the sort of we've been told is, we've been told is what you say, it seems to me, it's a kind of phraseology that distances you from um, from responsibility for the thing. And so rather than, yeah, this is what the church teaches, and I know for a lot of people it strikes their ears strangely today, but we believe it's what the church teaches, and we have so much faith in Jesus Christ that we accept, you know, something like that, this sort of we've been told is like, well, the powers that be. But it's very strange to see someone sort of distance themselves from the powers that be when they are the powers that be, right? When when the episcopacy is this sort of sa- – not sort of, this sacred identity, this ordained sacred identity, which exists in large part to be a carrier on and interpreter of the mysteries. Yeah. Of, of I, Revelation. You made, an, you made an, I thought, an astute observation in your newsletter that is that we've been saying for some time now that um, – we're due for a generational turnover in the U.S. Episcopate. Yeah, a lot of well, a lot of metropolitans are about to turn. 75. And especially in in at the level of metropolitan archbishops, that they are, you know, we're looking at. 
I think it's more than half in the next 18 months or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it's a lot. And that, you know, we can expect um, the new generation to be different from the old. And maybe Archbishop Coyne is an exemplar of the incoming new generation. Um, of Metropolitan Archbishop? I, I think probably. I think probably. In which case, I think, you know, then again, him as someone with a self-described expertise in communications uh, and, you know, a new status as a as an archbishop and a metropolitan archbishop in waiting i think how he speaks about these things merits attention and i do think it probably portends this sort of desire to distance oneself from doctrine rather than than teach doctrine sort of zealously i think may well dare we say it happily yeah i think may well portend um the kind of the, the approach to sort of theological things that uh, the, uh, to, to theological issues that metropolitans may present. I, I think that we're going to see, and I've said this before, not on the show, but in writing, we're going to see a growing gap, a growing distance between um, the, in terms of theology outlook and disposition in this country between diocesan bishops and their metropolitans. And the reason for that is because men who are being promoted to metropolitans generally sort of have the, the theological school of those who are, who are empowered to sort of be involved in the appointment of metropolitans, namely in this country, uh, Cardinal Blaise Zubich and Cardinal Joseph Tobin. And so you'll see men who are sort of theologically aligned with them and share their theological alignment on um, uh, appointed to, to, to metropolitan sees. But I don't know that that will track in terms of the appointment of diocesan bishops because the pool for the appointment of diocesan, you know, from which one can pull for the appointment of diocesan bishops is only so large. And I think the, what we have sort of seen is that the majority of priests in this country um, hold a different um, sort of theological alignment are much more in the sort of Benedict XVI school of, of, of theology and, and engagement than um, than would be sort of Supich and Tobin who represent the sort of paradigm shift that, that Supich has talked about so often and that Pope Francis has taken up his rhetoric. And so you do have these very differing theological schools. And I say that just descriptively. I'm not sort of saying that with um, with sort of qualitative judgments on them, but you, just descriptively, you have these two two different paradigms, and I think we'll see more of the metropolitan sees filled with that sort of paradigm shift school of theology and communication, where more things are regarded as being sort of open, and where the church is somewhat apologetic in terms of its engagement with the world on controversial doctrinal things. But I think the the over overall the episcopacy will sort of stay in that Benedict the sixteenth school that you might sort of call. That, that has been sort of described as dynamic orthodox or something like that, where Benedict really wants to be engaged with the modern world, but um, as pr- proposing Catholic doctrine as the answer to the various sort of philosophic and existential questions as the age, instead of sort of um, uh, trying to, d- to downplay their tensions. And so it, I think that Coyne's remarks are interesting because they may be sort of like the, the, um, the sign that this thing which we've been talking about, a shift in metropolitan sort of dynamics and inter-episcopal dynamics is, is, is happening. Is that fair? That is fair, but that's not actually the part of... That's not the part that I want to talk about. We're going to talk about the part that I want to talk about after this word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast and our Thanksgiving week is brought to us by subscribers to The Pillar. Um, The Pillar is, as you know, almost entirely a subscriber-funded operation. Sure, we have some ads on the podcast. We have the occasional ad in our newsletter. But the lion's share of The Pillar support comes from people who think that we make news and podcasts and Bible studies and newsletters and interviews and analysis and data reporting worth paying for, that we're doing something which is a service to the church and that they want to be a part of. Yes, and 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 a gigantic and sincere thank you to all of the subscribers to The Pillar because this does not happen. I mean, you you say, you know, we have some ad revenue from the podcast and the occasional ad and 
in the newsletters. But you said the lion's share. I mean, it's that's not doing it justice. We are talking north of ninety percent of um, what funds the pillar is is subscribers and and guys. We really appreciate it. We really need it. And um, I, I would invite those non-subscribers who are listening to this show to consider what a world without the pillar would be. You'd be bored. And not not just that, but what would the impact be on the church if there were no pillar? If you think that the pillar's reporting actually makes a difference on the life of the church, which it does, I think it's a fair question. Ask yourself what would happen if there were no pillar and Ed and I were working at Acme. Where they got bags. <laughs> at any rate, we don't have a tote bag. We don't have a free gift, but we would love it if you who are a listener and not a subscriber considered becoming a subscriber. We'd be very grateful for it. And you can rest assured that when we are... Um, uh, diving into our Thanksgiving feasts, we will um, offer some prayers of Thanksgiving for you and for all of our subscribers. So, okay, JD, what is what is it actually? What is it actually? We're back. We're talking about, I don't know, we're talking about this interview that Archbishop Coyne gave to a local um, news station yesterday, and uh, we, we, we've talked about the, the parts of it that have made headlines and attracted a lot of attention, headlines including our own, but I want to talk about another part of it, um, because this seems to me to, to, to express a problem that is not unique, I don't think, to bishops, and I don't think is unique necessarily to bishops of even a particular theological paradigm, uh, but it's uh, I want to talk about whether or not we are tooled up for prepared for have experience with or know how to proclaim the kingdom. And uh, and here's what I mean. Um, Archbishop Coyne was asked at the end of this interview, so he gets asked, you know, women in the church, and then he gets asked, are you going to close parishes? And he's very straightforward that he thinks parishes need to close, and he sort of talks about that. And he gets asked, you know, some other stuff like that, and what would he tell the Pope and, and all this. And then he's asked, okay, well, what would you say um, – to Catholics who have stopped practicing the faith, and maybe they're thinking about returning to the faith, maybe they're not thinking about, maybe they're thinking of returning to the faith, as I think I was framed. But what would you say to Catholics who have stopped practicing the faith? And I want to read you his answer, and then I want to talk about it. Okay, so what would you say to Catholics who have stopped practicing the faith and thinking about coming back? We have a place for you that you're always welcome. That when you come here, it's a non judgmental zone. That yes, sometimes our message is hard to hear because it's challenging, but we're all on the way to salvation and we want to accompany each other on that way, growing in the life of holiness. We don't want you to stay where you are. I don't want to stay where I am. I want to grow more towards God, but I want to walk with you, and all are welcome. Ed, would you like me to read it again? No, I think once was enough for me. <laughs> we have a place for you. That's you're always welcome. That when you come here, it's a non-judgmental zone. That yes, sometimes our message is hard to hear because it's challenging, but we're all on the way to salvation, and we want to accompany each other on that way, growing the life of holiness. We don't want you to stay where you are. I don't want to stay where I am. I want to grow more towards God, but I want to walk with you, and all are welcome. So here's what happened. Archbishop Coyne was effectively asked at the end of this interview, this eight-minute interview in which he was given a lot of room to say the things he wanted to say, Your Excellency, please proclaim the kingdom. Here is an open mic in which you have the attention of those Connecticuters who watch broadcast news who are going to watch this on YouTube or online or at the pillar. And um, would you proclaim the kingdom to disaffected Catholics effectively? And the answer, Ed, I want to give him credit for, I think, the part where he sort of says, I don't want to stay where I am. You don't want to stay where you are. You know, you don't want to stay where you are. I don't want to stay. I think that expresses something about sort of the desire of people to be in better circumstances or the recognition of people of the disorderedness of sin. But I was comparing that answer to the opening lines of, of Gaudium et Spes. Um, Ed, are you, have you read Gaudium et Spes, the Church's Apostolic Constitution on the Church in the Modern World from the Second Vatican Council? Yes. Um, I Unlike you, I don't 
refer back to it for my own personal edification at all times. I when it's the sec when it's the second long reading in the breviary, is it often not often, but as it is throughout the year, periodically they will do Gaudium its best readings. I read it there, but I would be lying if I said I had the opening of it committed to memory. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. What the, the opening line of Gaudium et Spes is saying is, we are in solidarity, we the church are in solidarity with you, you what you experience, we experience, and nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in the hearts of the, the, hearts of the, the followers of Christ, for theirs is a community of men united in Christ, they're led by the Holy Spirit in their journey to the kingdom of their Father, and they have welcomed the news of salvation which is meant for every man. This opening of Gaudium et Spes, whatever you think of the rest of the document, I think this opening of Gaudium et Spes is beautiful, profound, and prophetic because it says, effectively, Jesus Christ can respond to the ordinary joys and hopes and griefs of anxiety of human beings living in this time, in this place, in the way in which ordinary people live. Jesus Christ isn't something for a long time ago. Jesus Christ isn't something for just religious people. Jesus Christ is a person, and the people who follow him follow him with all of the crosses and travails and happinesses and joys and worries and things of ordinary people. And they have welcomed the news of salvation, which is meant for every man. The church has a message for everyone. That's the sort of call for the church to express in the modern world. We're with you. We are you. We're, we're, we're one with you. And we have the good news that our sins can be forgiven. Our relationships can be healed. Our hope restored. Our identities made clear by virtue of being sons and daughters of the Father and by virtue of the incarnation of Christ Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. The, the, there is a I read Archbishop Coyne's response, or I listened to Archbishop Coyne's response, and I realized it's it's not just Archbishop Coyne. I don't think we know how to proclaim the kingdom, or we do it often enough, or we have practice with it, or what? Because if I, I, I was putting on my pretend I'm a person who doesn't practice the faith hat, and I thought, okay, so what did I get? Um, the church is not going to judge me, but the fact that he had to say that means he's probably actually judging me. Um the, we're all on our way to salvation, but I don't really know what that is. And yeah, I guess the part about I don't want to stay where I am. Yeah, there are things about my life that I want to change, but I don't really know about what this is and walk with you and all are welcome. It sounds a little proofy to me um, if I don't sort of have a have a context for it. Well, it's it, something that they offer at the local goat yoga studio. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Actually, there's a ton of data <laughs> that says that people who I, – I found this super interesting. There's not a ton, but there are some statistics which say that – Churches which sort of emphasize above all else the sort of all are welcome affirming um, message and even sort of very explicitly sort of say we are LGBTQ allies and this sort of thing, they have lower percentages of people who, ident- who self-identify as, as, as gay or who even sort of self-identify as practicing gay than do churches which are not sort of um, leading with that message, which is the same message as, as the world. There's something I think that people are looking for in Christianity, which is not sort of the same as the world or the same as the message of the goat yoga studio, even if one doesn't sort of accept the whole of it on, on day one. You know what I mean? Sure. And I, I, I don't want to, I don't, while I, the, the purpose of this is not to beat up Archbishop Coyne. That was what I was going to say. Is, I think, I, to the talk first about... half of this conversation about <laughs> that was to beat up on Archbishop Coyne's comments because I think they, you know, you don't get to champion the Babylonian captivity of the church. As but a, this is to diagnose, I think, but this a problem, is, no, a broader I, 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 problem. Yes. Do we know how to proclaim the gospel? It is, if, if given if given a microphone and a television camera, do we know how to proclaim the gospel? I think you're right. I, it is 
we we should all of us, and this is not a thing about bishops or priests or deacons or deaconesses, if there is one day such a thing. Um, this is an every Catholic, every Christian issue is we you should be ready, we should be ready, I should be ready, always everywhere in a second's notice to proclaim the kingdom, to give a witness to the faith, to to offer someone a word for their salvation. Because that is the missionary meant. That is the great commission to go forth and make disciples of all nations. That we are the ones who, you know, St. Paul says, carry the treasure of eternal life in earthen vessels. That is our job to manifest the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the world, each of us individually and as a church. And it's a hell of a responsibility, but it's also something we have to think about. That, you know, if someone points a camera in your face and says, why should anyone go to a Catholic church? Go. Like, you have to be able to to say something. And I mean, yeah, okay, at one level you could default to, and I think it's always fine, the seven best words you can say are, God is love and Christ is risen. That, you know, if that's all you got time for, great, go for that. But if you're given any space to be able to say, no, that to, to say with confidence, with sincerity, that God is truly real and that God truly loves you as you are, like the, the, the whole reason that the people, and again, this is not an Archbishop Coin comment, this is an in general thing. Yeah. The whole reason people reflexively feel like they have to say, oh, no, come to church because it's good for you. And and yeah, you might feel like maybe there's judgment issues there. It's like, no, 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 no. The, the, this, all of that stuff goes away, in my experience, if you start from God loves you exactly as you are, which is true, and that God wants you to go to heaven, which is true. And God has a church that's entire purpose is to give you the means to get to heaven. That's all you need. It's not about oh you can come to church but you know you, you're kind of on your third marriage and that's a little tricky or you know but and yeah. that's not that's not how you start with the evangelization you start the evangelization but God loves you God is real Christ was real as a human person he truly died he is truly risen he is truly alive in heaven and why am I saying all this because it has had this effect on my life and that right. is the that's thing right. an effective witness an effective announcement of the gospel an effective elevator pitch for the faith has to be rooted in what we call the kerygma, the announcement of the good news that you know Christ is truly God, Christ truly became man, truly died, truly rose, truly is in heaven so that we can all go there. But it has to be rooted in our own experience of faith. And that I think is the most important thing is to be asking ourselves constantly, do I have an experience of faith? What has God done for me? What is my experience of the church? Is my experience of the church fellowship? And yeah. you know, coffee and donuts, and you know, community. I mean, all of that's nice. Don't get me wrong. I like donuts, but I, I but I wouldn't get up on a Sunday for it either. Yeah, but that's not you know the 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 DoorDash guy will bring donuts to my house. I'm you know I don't <laughs> I don't have to look at anyone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And no one will try and you know hold my hand during the Our Father or anything like that. You know, it's there are easier ways to get donuts than the Catholic Church. But you have to be able to say, look, this is where I was when I was a young man. I did a lot of crazy, nasty stuff that you know whether it was drinking to way to excess or trying drugs or all that other stuff. And why did I do it? For the simple reason that I was convinced I had to provide for my own happiness, that no one else would ever truly love me. And I, and only I, was responsible for my own life and making myself happy. And none of that was true. And the only reason I came to understand it was not true. And to understand the truth, because someone said to me that God loved me as I am. And that was the start of the conversation that brought me into the proper practice of my faith. And we don't have to have, I mean, to your point, we don't have to even have um, 
uh, once I was a young man sowing my wild oats and took half my took my father's inheritance and went out and soon I was no. But everyone's you know, story is different. Big, everyone's history of salvation is what it is. We it's can even have. I have always known the love of God, and I'm so grateful for that because here's what it, I, I was baptized, and I have always known the love of God, and I'm so grateful for that because here's what I have experienced in God's mercy, and here's what I have experienced in God's abundant love for me, and here's what I've experienced about how I know myself as a son or daughter of God, like. We don't have to have even a sort of – to proclaim the kingdom, we don't have to have even a sort of dramatic conversion or something like that. We have to have the authentic witness of our lives, and we have to believe – we have to believe, as John Paul II put it, that Jesus Christ is the answer to the question which plagues every – to the questions which plague every human heart. And if we believe that, then I think we can confidently say whatever it is that you're carrying – Someone has carried it and found consolation in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that you think is intractable and irreversible, whatever sadness, whatever brokenness, whatever emptiness, whatever despair you're carrying, the Lord wants you to put it on the cross and he wants to carry it for you. Like if if you know that that's true, then you can't help but want to proclaim it. If you don't know that it's true, and I'm not saying that the Archbishop doesn't, then of course you can't proclaim it, but you may well know it's true and still think I have to put this, I have to sort of give this on the world's terms, or I have to sort of answer in the world's terms. And I think that I read some data once that said that people think that the church is too judgmental, which is not actually the reason why people say they don't practice faith. But I think I read some data once that people said they think the church is too judgmental, and so I should put that in, and I should say something about a company because that's what we say now. Like we can get into our head about the way that we sort of say very clearly, God is alive and He loves you. And when we do that, the message is not compelling. And no, um, and it has to be compelling. And I mean, to your point, it's not a question of thinking. You know, you need to have a "I was bad, now I'm good" story. It's not that. And for the record, I don't think that it's a dramatic narrative to say, "Yeah, in high school, I drank a lot of beer." I mean, sure, that's just the standard biography of Supreme Court well, nominee sure. these days. But, but I wouldn't say that it's a dramatic inversion either. That when I was in high school, I drank a lot of beer, and then I did. You know what I mean? Like that's not precisely a dramatic inversion either. No, but that, there's that, a danger it, in which there is a danger on the other side of the coin, in which people can sometimes dramatize their lives for the sake of a conversion story. But you should do neither. What you right. have to be able to articulate is that you know God is real because you have count, you have encountered it, that you, you've encountered him and you've encountered his love. And that means everything from, I can love other people. I can forgive people. I can experience forgiveness. This is not a dramatic narrative. This is not a dramatic dramatization of your life. Like If you have a marriage that holds together, it is because you're able to Forgive each other. That you know, th this is what it is to experience the you know life and the freedom of the resurrection of Christ is that you don't have to freak out when you encounter points of injustice in your own family, at work, wherever else. That you know you can begin to imitate Christ. That you can begin to see that there is life and love, and most importantly, life in the love of. What Christ would say, the the enemy turning the other cheek. That you know, right. you don't have to respond to injustice with violence. That you can take on the you know, as Christ did, take up your cross and follow Him. That's the thing: is That's have right. you encountered God in your life? So I raise all this again. Not this is not coin specifically. I think this is a genuine question because you know you you can you can certainly see this with other bishops. You can certainly see this with other clerks. You can certainly see this with plenty of lay people. Um. It seems clear to me that this that that if there is an invitation to proclaim the gospel, there are very many people who are not sure what that should be or how to go about it. And I think that's we need to look at that very very seriously and not sort of programmatically and like that. Maybe we don't need we forgot sake we don't need a parish program called 
you know, proclaiming together. Um, oh, no, please don't do that. Ten words. I, I think what we actually need is the experience of, uh, of of evangelical witness. Ten words. God is love, Christ is mission, and I've met him. That Go from there. Start with those ten words. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Okay. Edward, it's Thanksgiving on Thursday. Did you know that? I'm aware. And uh, thanks on Thanksgiving, I know that you like to roast a great many meats on Thanksgiving, and that's fine. But the conventional meat for Thanksgiving is turkey, is it not? I, I will be smoking a turkey this Thanksgiving. Okay. And therefore, Ed, I have some questions for you about turkey. Okay. I mean, to, to, to full disclosure, I we had the original meat for this year was we were going to get a 19-pound ostrich leg. Oh, wow. Because everyone only likes dark meat, let's be honest. White yeah. meat is essentially you keep it there for either sandwiches or curry yeah. the next day. Everyone wants the dark meat. So we thought if we can get a 19-pound slab of dark bird meat, why why wouldn't we just smoke that? But the, the ostrich farm in question failed to deliver. So we So our ostriches ostriches are farmed for meat? Is that oh, a, yeah. uh, in the United States? I believe so. Yes. There are meat there are meat ostrich farms. Ground, ostrich burgers are a thing. Um, Why did he fail to deliver? Like that, it seems like if you put down your money for a product, the product would come. Like, what is there a supply chain issue with ostriches? I, I am the the details are fuzzy. My brother was. Is in, it possible that your brother forgot to order it and then said the I ostrich don't guy didn't know come through? If I, I don't it, look in the in the name of fraternal harmony, it's not for me to ask. All I know is there was a supplier identified. The supplier offered nineteen pound ostrich legs. There was an undertaking by one of the brothers to procure said ostrich leg, and something happened, and no ostrich leg was forthcoming. And we well, were, if I may, which brother? I no, we're not playing that game. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we are no, we're defaulting to we always do pork belly burnt ends mm-hmm. um, as a sort of amuse bouche. Uh, we will be smoking a whole turkey this year. We also have um, a, a rib roast, a four bone rib roast that will probably be. I don't know if it'll be. Yeah, that'll probably be smoked as well. We smoked we smoked a few of those last year, and that turned out really well. And then we have a beef loin. Just that's you know. How many people are you? Well, I mean, if you just do my immediate family, we're we're over thirty now. Mm. So we'll be about twenty at our Thanksgiving table, and Catherine is making two turkeys, and they'll be very very good. And she always makes good turkeys. But I think I'm going to go up to Little Saigon tomorrow and buy um, either a. a, a a full sort of Vietnamese roast duck or a large slab of pork belly or possibly both. There's a, I've got a, got a shop there. <laughs> if you have the option to go get duck and pork belly, get them. I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, neither is free. You know what I mean? And this is the time of year in which one pinches one's pennies because Christmas is coming and it's time to renew our annual. Oh, this is the nice thing and, about only having one child who's amused by a pot lid. <laughs> There will be no money spent on Christmas presents in the con- – well, we don't have the money to spend on Christmas. But what yeah. money we have, it's going to go on meat. and It always meets at Thanksgiving and then for Christmas, it's cheese. Ah, a lot of cheese is purchased. We usually have a very nice piece of beef. So we go to um, we go to uh, not midnight mass but nighttime mass on, on, on Christmas Eve. Our friends who have a little religious order – have this very very nice mass for sort of friends and 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 associates I suppose, and um, we always go to their sort of Christmas mass. And so before that, we have a nice family dinner and we have a nice piece of beef for that. But on Turkey on Thanksgiving, Kate tends to be conventionally turkey, and I like that very much. But I think I'm going to go up to Little Saigon tomorrow because I've just I've been thinking about this duck in the window 
for a couple of weeks now, and I feel like this is as good an excuse as any. Now, maybe I'll get there and they'll say that I should have ordered early, but I'm counting on the fact that in the in the neighborhood called Little Saigon in Denver, I'm counting on the fact that many of the people there are first-generation Americans, which is true, and that they perhaps don't celebrate Thanksgiving or they want to celebrate Thanksgiving in a conventionally American way. So I'm I'm betting, I'm hoping, yeah, I'm not even betting, I'm hoping that the demand there is the same as the demand any other time of the year, or the output is very, is high and they're just moving a lot of product because suburban dads like me head up there and buy stuff. I don't, I don't know. Ducks are superior. Ducks, greater sign turkey. Yes. We used to go back and forth on turkey for Christmas because my wife obviously has, has observes the, the English tradition of turkey at Christmas. And I think, you know, two turkeys in the space of a month is, is effectively overkill. Um, but what we've come up with, come down to is we do, we do ducks now for Christmas and yeah. you just get as many ducks as you need to feed the people. Yeah. Um, whoever's coming to dinner and it's really good. I love duck. Yeah. I like duck, duck a lot. So much yeah. fun. Me too. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but Turkey is the conventional thing. And so I think it's fair that we have a conversation about Turkey. Does that seem reasonable to you? I thought that's what we've been doing. Yeah, so I didn't make. We're, we're now going to play a turkey game. Oh, we've got a game. Oh, okay, yes, we've got a game. It's it's not a game. It's a trivia game, which I didn't make sort of turkey greater or lesser than. But I've got a turkey. Some turkey questions for you. Gobble gobble. <laughs> this is not the bonus episode. And to which continent does Turkey belong? Ah, well, this is the great. Um, this is the great question. I you, you I you it has to you have to say Europe, um, in part. At least, because of course, the great city of Constantinople, now known as Istanbul, is unquestionably a European city. You you can't you can't possibly maintain otherwise. Uh, but of course, it's also part of what I believe we call Asia Minor, where the bulk of Turkey would be found. Yeah. So I mean, it's it, it has applied for membership of the European Union. It is a member of NATO. It, it's, it, it is the gateway. It is the bridge between East and West. That's Asia. right. The answer is both. Good job, Ed. Asia and Europe. Well done. You've done done great on that one. Ed, what can the country of Turkey be described as? A continent, a peninsula, a desert, or all of them? I don't think you could describe it as a continent. That's That, that would be overselling it. It's simply not that big. Uh, it is primarily peninsular in shape, I yeah, suppose. Well done. With great the job. Black, job. With the Black Sea above it and the Med below it. Yeah. Great. And what is the most popular sport in Turkey? Rugby, volleyball, soccer, or basketball? Mustache growing. <laughs> Rugby, volleyball, soccer, or basketball? Volleyball. Oh, I'm very sorry. Volleyball, I ever since the Olympics a few years ago, I've been watching volleyball. Not beach volleyball, but like volleyball, volleyball. <laughs> I love that call. Not beach volleyball. Not I'm beach not volleyball. one of those people. Volleyball is a surprisingly intense and interesting sport. I did not. I mean, the gym version that the play the, the version that most people played in PE, you probably didn't. But the version that most people played in PE does not do justice to this to the game of volleyball. Uh, my only experience of volleyball comes from the movie Top Gun. Uh, I see. Well, that is beach volleyball. It looked fun. You've never watched Olympic volleyball or anything like that. No, I. We can talk about this if you want, but. I'm not much of a fan of the Olympics. Uh, the That's Summer right. Olympics, I should clarify. I'm a big junkie for the Winter Olympics. Summer Olympics leave me 
ironically, cold. Oh, I like watching many of the sports. Okay, Ed, and then forgetting about them for four years. Ed, which sporting event is believed to have started over 4,500 years ago in Turkey? Wrestling. Swimming, boxing, oil wrestling, or archery? Sticking with wrestling, Chris. <laughs> okay. Uh, oil wrestling, also called grease wrestling, is a traditional Turkish sport in which competitors are held in a proving ground called Ur Maidami and, and uh, try to um, – Question. When you say yes. grease wrestling, is this like when you're trying to get me to say Canada goose instead of Canadian? Should it not be Grecian wrestling? No, no. We're not talking about Greek wrestling. We're talking about Greece wrestling in which competitors are greased up, making it more difficult to grasp each other. Oh. And the annual Kirkpiner tournament held in Edirne um, in Turkish Strafe since 1346 is the oldest continuously running sanctioned sporting event competition in the world. The oil wrestling competition in Edirne is the oldest continuously running sanctioned sporting competition in the world. That's cool. So wrestling it's it is. very cool. I would like to see that. Uh, I That actually, what you're describing conforms more or less to my only experience of volleyball as seen in Top Gun. <laughs> so I feel like I have seen it, but, you know, cool. More of that sort of thing. Why not? <laughs> okay. Uh, Ed, what kind of nut is Turkey the largest producer of? The hazelnut, the walnut, the almond, or the cashew? Um, okay, I know it's not cashew because cashews come from the South Pacific and in fact are moderately poisoned. This is do you know this is why cashews are more expensive than all the other nuts? Is because raw cashews are actually poisonous and so you have to roast them or dry them in a particular way so that they become non-toxic. True story. Uh so you I'm left with almond, macadamia, and hazelnut. Hazelnut. Almond, walnut, and cashew. Well, it's not hazelnut because hazelnut – You know that Costco – did we talk about this? Did you know that Costco sells something like half the world's retail volume of cashews? That doesn't surprise me actually. I read that in a Wall Street Journal article about about uh, Costco. It really surprised me. Half the retail volume of cashews is sold at, at Costco? Well, because if you're selling it at Costco, you're basically selling to trade, aren't you? So you say half the retail volume, but a lot of that is going to go on to be resold or you know served in – you know, bars and things like that, surely. I suppose. This is the thing is Costco is not, it, Costco is a wholesaler. Costco is not quite a wholesaler. But it, I mean, it sells, is, it sells as a wholesaler and as a retailer simultaneously. So I don't know that yeah. moving out the door of Costco, I don't know if you can call that strict retail because you'll get restaurants. What kind people. of nut is turkey the largest producer? Okay, of it's not a hazelnut because I know what a hazelnut tree is and that they don't grow in turkey. So I'm going to go with almond. Okay, well. You probably don't know then that almost all of the world's almond crop is produced in California at great, incredible ecological cost to the people of California. I did not know that. I don't know anything about the production of walnuts, but I do know that hazelnuts are largely produced in Turkey. No kidding. Conquer no trees? It is you who say so. This is that, – that you're blowing my mind here. Ed, two saints who both are said to have killed dragons are said to have died in Turkey. Who are they? Oh, uh, well, George is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, other saint who killed a dragon. Anatolianus. <laughs> Close. You're right, Saint Margaret. Saint there Margaret and Saint Lord, both saints who killed dragons are said to have died in Turkey. And this saint who is said to have saved a choking boy through his prayers died in Turkey. Saint Heimlich. <laughs> Close, Ed. Would it surprise you to know it's Saint Blaze? Oh, the candles in the throat thing. That's right. Ed, this saint who, I don't know, dropped coins down a prostitute's chimney or 
<laughs> yes, indeed, was the bishop of the famous, of the Turkish city of... Smyrna. I think Myra. Myra? Myra is it, it is I, I, in Smyrna. It's not. I don't think has any. I don't think has anything to do with Saint Nicholas. You don't have to try and find a tenuous relationship between Saint Nicholas and the city of Smyrna, <laughs> so that I feel better about not knowing where Saint Nicholas was bishop. That that's that's okay with me. I can just be wrong. And this sixth-century monk in what is present-day Turkey was famous for remaining silent. Isn't that most of them? Um, yes. Ah. Uh, Saint John the Silent. <laughs> I did not know there was a Saint John the Silent. I did not know that either, but I'm reading it in this here article. Ed, this saint in now modern day Turkey was a fifth century hermit who lived for decades on top of a pillar in the wilderness as a penance. Show me Saint Simon the Stylite. Hey, oh, you got it. Ed, this golden tongued saint was once a patriarch of Constantinople. Golden tongued is the clue. Um, Eastern Catholics celebrate his liturgy. Athanasius? He's a doctor of the church. Still, You're right, Ed. St. John Chrysostom. Oh. I don't think of him as being golden-tongued. It's like the most Isn't famous what... image of him screaming at the empress. I thought that that's what Chrysostom might mean. I know, I know no Greek. Full we disclosure. Are no, we, are no, we are no patristic scholars, are we? I, no, I love me some um, fathers of the desert. You know, but I I got nothing. I know no Greek. I you could yeah, golden tongued is what Christism means. I would not if you if you put a gun to my head, I could not have told you that. I would have told you it was something to do with Christology, and you know. Yeah, that would sound that would stand to reason, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I would be wrong, as I often am. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, Ed. This has been wonderful. Um, we've got to wrap it up here, and uh, I'll ask you this one finally. Ed, this Caprese saint was a bishop in what is now modern-day Turkey and a great friend of St. Gregory of Nazianzus. The Caprese saint. Saint Salad? That is, there is something called a Caprese Salad. I bet it's not Saint Tomato. I bet it's not Saint, saint Mozzarella. No. Saint Basil. Saint Basil the Great. Saint Basil the Great, Ed. Well done. Your turkey knowledge is on point and you are ready for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you have a great one. You too, buddy. And Nate, say hello to the diaconess for me. <laughs> the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NGD Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, New Jersey guy. Are you wearing a gold chain today? Is that for New Jersey? No, I have a, I have a, I have a chain with a crucifix and a medal of um, my personal patron saint it was sticking out more than usual and it looked like maybe that was for new jersey like your shirt is a little open oh no i i mean i have a role of mr t chains that i wear when i go out to you know buy beer and things here um and i mean i will i will obviously get changed before i venture out so i'm not wearing a shirt with a collar in it i have a i have a track suit in the other room that i'll I'll put on Great. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.